Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my Always co-host, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, how are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm particularly looking forward to this episode uh, to learn not only from our guest, uh, but from you, because you share a common expertise and familiarity with a pretty important country that we haven't really been talking about enough. Well, our guest is an expert. I'm merely a dilettante um, on the subject. Uh, Our guest is Henri Barkey, the uh, Bernard and Bertha Cohen Professor of International Relations at Lehigh University. He's also an adjunct fellow in Middle East Studies at the Center um, and the Council for Foreign Relations, rather, and former chair of the Middle East Program at the Wilson Center. Uh, and has had a stint in government as well uh, for a number of years in the Clinton administration on the policy planning staff of the Department of State, working on all things Turkish and Eastern Mediterranean. Um, And uh, Henri, uh, whether he wants to admit it or not, full disclosure requires me to say that he and I have been co-authors on at least two occasions. We've co-authored an op-ed together about the plight of U.S. Foreign Service nationals who are being held hostage and still are, in some cases, being held under kind of house arrest in uh, in Turkey by the government of Turkey, as well as a op-ed together in the uh, former uh, journal, The American Interest, on the Obama administration and the siege of Kobani way back in 2014. Henri, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a dedicated follower of the podcast, so it's a particular delight to be here. Well, I'm glad to glad to have you. Uh, it's very timely because of the uh, very tragic events that are going on in Turkey as we speak uh, as a result of the two earthquakes that have occurred, but uh, also political tremors in the country as, as well leading up to the presidential election uh, that is now at least currently scheduled for May 14th. You, uh, in the past week or so, have written a very, very penetrating essay on the importance of the presidential election in Turkey. Tell us a bit about why you see this as such a consequential uh, election in Turkey. Turkey has been ruled now by Recep Tayyip Erdogan since uh, 2003. His party won uh, the election in 2002. He became prime minister in 2003. So we've had essentially a 20-year run by him, during which Turkey was transformed and the government was transformed in many different ways. That is to say, Turkey has become economically far more dynamic. Partially, it was reforms that were introduced earlier by a previous president, Turgutu Zal, that uh, finally uh, produced results. But Erdogan at the beginning managed the country fairly well. But with time, as he won more and more elections, he became uh, increasingly autocratic to the point where today it really is a one-man show in Turkey. That is to say that you have a president who has control of just about every single institution in Turkey. He decides everything. 
uh, he is truly an amazing politician. I mean, he is a detail-oriented person. Nothing happens without his permission. And so he now controls uh, the military, he controls the judiciary, he controls the press, he controls universities um, and uh, the central bank. So it is his policies that are um, the, the imprint of Turkish both foreign and domestic policy. So he is now running for re-election and because the economy is suffering from very high inflation, a balance of payments deficit, potential uh, currency crisis. Um, he, for the first time, he's being uh, challenged seriously uh, because until now he's won elections rather easily. Um, but um, so were he to lose, and I'm putting it in uh, quotation marks, it would be a major change in Turkey because it would provide Turkey or it would open the possibility of what I would call regime change in Turkey, because what one of the things that Erdogan has done was to convert a parliamentary system into this one-person presidential system. And the opposition promises to return back to the parliamentary system. So in that sense, it's very consequential. But there are clearly uh, foreign policy repercussions as well we can talk about. So I just want to say that as a start. Yeah, I mean, if I could follow that up, I mean, so a point you make in the article with which I hardly agree is, is that for uh, Erdogan, you know, foreign policy begins at home. Everything really is about how what he does in, in foreign policy will redound to his domestic political benefit. And he's someone who has changed, you know, many times in terms of you know, different positions that he's uh, taken. Most recently, after being at odds with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE, for instance, he has, and Egypt, he's made nice with all of them, in part because he wants the flow of money from uh, the Gulf countries into, into the Turkish economy to uh, help compensate for some of the economic difficulties that you were describing. It seems to me he's just throwing money at voters before the election in, in an effort at sort of uh, free spending populism to try and buy back some of the political difficulty that he's been in, uh, as you say, the mismanagement of the economy. I mean, you mentioned 85% uh, inflation. I mean, isn't that largely due to his own self-inflicted economic policies, which seem to be at odds with what most traditional economists would tell you? And on the foreign policy front, isn't he searching for advantage, in, whether it's in Syria or against Greece or blocking Finland and Sweden from accession to NATO, all of this is to try and puff up his position on the world stage and extract, quote, benefits that he can sell to the uh, nationalist element of the coalition he's put together with the MHP, the Nationalist Party. Is that fair? No, that's, that's, that's very fair. Did you make one point about the inflation rate? Yes, he has some very bizarre ideas about how to combat inflation where most every every economist uh, in the world will tell you that if the rate of inflation increases, you also increase interest rates. The central bank should comp uh, try to fight inflation with increasing interest rates. He seems to think, and he thinks that this is um, well-established theory, at least in his head, that in fact it is the, uh, the, the interest rates that cause inflation and not vice versa. If you, if you reduce inflation, if you reduce the rate interest rates, then inflation will go down. 
and he seems very intent. And the other day he said, anybody who doesn't believe this is either a traitor or an idiot. So he's not going to get the economic, the prize, Nobel Prize in economics, that's for sure. But, uh, but it, is, it is a strategy. I mean, it, it is definitely a strategy because he thinks he can get himself elected by ha- having both high inflation and avoid unemployment because he, he continues to pour money into the system. He wants people to invest. He, he makes, uh, makes it easier for certain um, sectors of the economy to get credits. So it's a, it's a very risky strategy, obviously. But I should also say that the inflation is not wholly uh, the result of his economic policies. Look, there's a war in Ukraine and which has pushed gas and oil prices through the roof. So just like in Europe and the United States where you've had inflation as a result of, of uh, the, the war, Turkey also suffers from, from that. So it's not wholly his, his fault. I mean, the inflation rate is 85%, but I wouldn't say maybe 40% of that is outside uh, sources. Could, could I ask you a, a question, Henri? You know, you described him taking control of just about every major institution in in Turkey. And yet you talk about the election uh, here and, and in that uh, that terrific article as though it's something that he could lose. And there have been elections where his party has lost, uh, most notably the, the mayor of uh, uh, of Istanbul, the mayor of Ankara, although, as you also point out, uh, he finds a way to remove those people from power. We'll talk later on, I'm sure, about the impact of the earthquakes on that election. But, but just how clean or how dirty, maybe that's a better way of putting it, is that uh, election likely to be? That is to say, you know, there are dictatorships where you can just be sure that whoever is the president is going to win because absolutely every ballot box has been stuffed. But but it sounds like Turkey's not quite there yet. And I have to confess, I don't fully understand what's the, what's the range here. Could you talk to that? Yes. I mean, Turkey is not Belarus. I mean, there's no question that Erdogan commands uh, a great deal of power and influence. But elections have become important in Turkey because you've had successive elections over the years. So so the Turkish public expects that it can have, it, ha, it has a say in, in the electoral process. So you can't turn Turkey into a Belarus where you stuff the, 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 box, the ballot boxes. So he, he does play games with the system, but he's, it's difficult to, stu- uh, to stuff the ballot boxes because a you have outside observers from the OECD and uh, domestically from NGOs, and also people people take elections very seriously in Turkey. The way he influences the elections is by banning political parties, banning politicians, um, by making use that the. For, I'll, I'll give you one example. The Kurdish, the poor Kurdish party, HDP, the People's Democracy Party, after the municipal elections in 2019, won a whole series of municipalities in in the southeast and east of Turkey. Within days of those elections, he removed all the mayors of uh, that had won election and replaced them by government appointee, you know, pro AKP bureaucrats. 
Why does he do that? In part because it, it is, after all, a, a, a system in Turkey where the, the state provides lots of benefits. So if you provide those benefits, you expect that the um, voters will be, shall we say, sympathetic to you because you, you provide it. And also the threat of withdrawing those benefits make voters more likely to vote for the government party. That's in some ways you can say it's not that different than, than um, other parts of the world. But here it's far more obvious. That is to say the the, the, the system that he's created, right, of providing these, these benefits um, has voters who may be opposed to him vote for him because they're afraid that those benefits will go away. And especially in less developed parts of the country, like East, the, East, uh, the East and the Southeast, this becomes uh, fairly significant. Then again, I should say that in that part of the country, the HDP is very, very strong. I mean, the pro-Kurdish party. But, but he plays these games. And, and the reason why in 2019, when he lost the municipal elections in Istanbul and he had to do a re, he forced a, a redo of those elections is because Istanbul A is a cash cow for uh, for the for his party but also the, the vote uh, the he it's a way for him to control the voters so that's why he was very upset at losing it but you can see that he can lose elections if i could just ask a follow up on that you know clearly one of the things that's critical to having a fair election is to have a reasonably open information environment. And yet, you know, one of the things that you document is this really extensive crackdown on a free press. And I was wondering if you could say a bit about the state of the Turkish press and to what extent are uh, average Turks living in a an information bubble or do, you know, dissenting ideas and views kind of come in through other venues? In terms of the broadcast media, television, radio, and print media, most of it is in the, under the government control. And you can see when you, when you look at the headlines of the newspapers, you can see that they have been told what to put on their front page because they, very often you have exactly the same headline for in all of these cases so there's a very clear uh, control of the media and most people get their information from there however there still exists some newspapers that are uh, opposition newspapers that uh, two of them come to mind uh, and they, paradoxically, of course, since newspapers depend on government advertising, the government doesn't advertise in those newspapers. They try to, 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 to shall we say, squash them through, not just through censorship, but also through economically. And somehow they have survived, some of them. Today, the Turkish uh, electorate, uh, or the Turkish public, I should say, is fairly sophisticated in the sense that it uses the internet and it knows about the VPN. So it does have access to information. And you do see that 
the government very often is put in a defensive position because these alternative networks or internet networks or uh, internet newspapers come up with information and there's some very good journalists there that that work and they really sometimes manage to put the government on the defensive now it's very hard to tell you to tell you what percentage of the turkish public actually reads those on a daily basis but people talk to each other i mean cell phones are everywhere um people use um you know the internet to communicate and therefore if there is a great deal of information flow at the moment so i can't tell you as i said what percentage percentage of the public is getting news from alternative sources on a regular basis but it is fairly significant since today when you look at the polls there is a great deal of um, the great number of the population maybe 50% of the population is willing to vote against the government so if you had complete control and if you controlled everything that would not have happened like my guess is all right let me follow up if i might elliot's you know sort of line of inquiry here first question is you've pointed out that erdogan has quote lost elections i mean we, we can go back in 2015 there was a hung parliament his party didn't win that election and he undermined the efforts of his then prime minister to forge a national unity government uh, and forced the country back to the polls and, and got an electoral outcome that was more to his liking. Um, in, in the green room before we started, uh, you and I and Elliot were talking about the 2017 constitutional referendum that set up this presidential system you mentioned. And that does seem to be a case that was so close that there does seem to have been some actual fiddling of the vote, particularly in the southeast uh, of the country. Uh, you know, different people say different things about whether it was definitive or not, whether it made the actual difference. But it was very close vote. Could have could have gone the other way. There, uh, you've mentioned the efforts to nullify the votes in Istanbul when Ekrem Imamoglu was elected uh, mayor of Istanbul in 2019. You've mentioned the mayors who were removed from office, uh, the HDP mayors in the Southeast. So he has methods, even if he loses, for kind of mitigating that from his point of view. He goes into this presidential election, as you point out in your article, trailing all of the potential competitors in the polls, although he, he strengthened his poll numbers recently. My question to you is this. Can he afford to lose an election in the sense that if he loses, you said correctly in my view, that we are going to see an effort at regime change because the table of six, the opposition parties, want to try and go back to the parliamentary system that he ended instead of this strong presidential system. There's no prime minister in Turkey now. There's a vice president who is of no account. And as you say, everything revolves around the person of the president. Can in that circumstance, can he afford to lose? Because not only will there be regime change in the sense that there will be an effort to go back to a parliamentary system, but isn't it the case he's very likely to be, he and members of his family, very likely to be prosecuted uh, for corruption uh, if he loses? And so in that sense, is he not a little bit like you know, President Putin, who can't afford to have a successor because uh, the danger is that you know he'll he'll pay a huge you know, maybe in Super Bowl price for it. I'm I'm struck by the fact that he constantly refers to what happened to Adnan Menderes, 
1963 when he was executed by the military uh, after a coup. Uh, he, he said repeatedly, privately and publicly, that I'm not going to have happen to me what happened to Menderes. Isn't that haunting him in some sense? Yes, it is haunting him. I mean, first of all, let me just make one slight correction. He's not trailing every single potential candidate. I think he still beats Kulishtarolo the main opposition party leader. I think that's, so he's trying to maneuver the um, the current situation at the moment so that Kulishtarovu becomes his opponent because he thinks he can beat, beat Kulishtarovu, which I think is probably, is right. Um, but, um, but yes, he cannot afford to lose this election. It's not just him and his family that would go down. But it's a whole coterie of uh, people who have benefited from him, especially in the construction industry. Uh, the, the creation of very large conglomerates that get all the contracts to build bridges, tunnels, hospitals, you, you name it. And also this uh, uh, amazing uh, media conglomerates that do his bidding, right? Uh, so people who work there uh, um, and judges, Right, who have done his bidding over the years. So the number of people who would suffer, quote unquote, from a regime change is quite large. So of course he may, he will look at it from his own perspective and his immediate family's perspective. But um, I, I would say that the, the consequences are much larger than the family. Now, would he, he would be prosecuted you know, it's one of these things like we have in this country. What do you go after a pre former president or not? And uh, whether, whether um, you know, they would take that chance because he does have a very solid uh, support base. I mean, that we may see the same thing we saw in the United States and Brazil of people trying to attack the, um, the institutions in Ankara where he to actually lose elections. I mean, this is a definitely a possibility. Um, so maybe they would find, a, a, shall we say, an agreed exit for him. I mean, so that there's not that much um, unrest in the country, so to say, afterwards, right? But it is, it, look, the other aspect of losing, of course, is that Erdogan has become, in his own mind and his uh, in the minds of his followers, much greater than that. I mean, he losing, it's a little bit like Trump, with, but, but losing would be such a uh, defeat personally for his ego, for his, his place in history. How can somebody who is now rivaling in his own mind, Ataturk, the founder of, his, of the country, can lose an election? That to him, to, in my view, is impossible to contemplate. So he will do everything in his power to avoid a defeat. And we saw that, and, and I, I even think that he's really willing to start an international crisis if, that, if he thinks that will help him. Now that I have to say was one of the more chilling things in your article. You talk about the possibility that you know, even manufacturing a violent incident with Greece is a possibility. These awful earthquakes are first and foremost a, a great humanitarian tragedy. But of course, one also has to ask: Okay, what? How do you assess the possible political consequences of that? 
uh, given that the elections are not all that far off? Look, um, I think the earthquake will be a decisive factor. And it may be that the earthquake will be the nail in his coffin. The, the reason I say this is because, yes, I thought, he, if, especially if he were to run against Mr. Kulishtar or the main opposition party leader, I thought that he, his chances of winning were pretty good. It's only against the mayor of Istanbul or the mayor of Ankara that he uh, the chances of losing increased substantially. Um, and and of course, politics is the kind of sport that at the very end you don't know what what will happen. That you know the opposition could uh, stage a comeback. But the earthquake changes all of these because. By virtue of the fact that Erdogan essentially became the state, I mean, very much Louis XIV style, l'état c'est moi, he is now responsible for everything. I'll just, just I, I read something very interesting today. Um, after the earthquake, the Istanbul Stock Exchange went through a great deal of tumult and fell uh, a huge percentage. And there was a discussion as whether or not they should close, close, stop trading on the Istanbul Stock Exchange. And this decision had to be made by the minister, uh, the treasury minister. Um, well, he did not make, take the decision because he was afraid of asking Erdogan whether or not he should do it. In other words, Erdogan, in his mind, Erdogan would have to make that decision. And, and um, the minister is a little bit of a, shall we say, I don't know, um, not maybe very sure of himself uh, within the bureaucracy. So he was afraid, apparently, to ask Erdogan. Right? So Erdogan makes every single decision. Now, you will say some stopping trading on the Istanbul Stock Exchange is an important decision. I mean, uh, surely he had a, a, a role to say. But the way the press has played him up over the years, the way he has played himself, uh, all these everybody looks at Erdogan for every single decision. So when you have an earthquake of this size and the, the response by the state of, uh, to this calamity has been very poor, to put it mildly. They couldn't get, they couldn't get uh, the, the relief equipment and relief people to, to the locations. There are still places that have not been um, reached yet. Um, the number of uh, dead at the moment is over 30,000, but everybody expects that it will go up significantly, certainly over 50,000. Um, and so the failure is seen, especially in the areas um, where the, the, the earthquake hit, the four provinces, uh, that it is it is Erdogan's fault. And those four provinces represent about 15% of the population. And they traditionally have been pro-Erdogan, pro-AKP provinces. Of the four provinces, in three of them, in the last election, he won uh, by more than 50%. So he got a majority with all the parties running. And only in one did he get uh, 36%, and he was still uh, the number one the number one party. So, but the anger in those provinces is so incredible 
that he's bound to pay a price. And people are watching. I mean, part of the, shall we say, the communication revolution in Turkey that people now know exactly what's happening and people connect. And um, and you will see you will see citizens from those four provinces ultimately going to different parts of the country because it's impossible to live there at the moment, right? So they will go to their families, to their friends, seek, seeking shelter, and and the stories of poor relief work is going to spread. And I think he really now is in danger of losing the election. I mean, even if, even I think maybe Mr. Kulcharov would be able to beat him uh, in this under these circumstances. So I so he's going to have to figure out uh, or pull the rabbit out of the hat if uh, in these upcoming elections. Uh, I mean, I would bet today if every Cetus uh, Paribus, all things being equal, he would definitely lose. But this is Erdogan. He 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 will come up with something. Well, will he postpone the elections? I mean, I mean, you know, you've outlined essentially a, a kind of neo-patrimonial state that he's created, right? In which, uh, you know, as you said, l'état c'est moi, mm -hmm. I own everything. And what you get, if it's a construction thing, or if it's a newspaper or a TV property, it's, you know, by less majesté, because I, the sovereign, have, have, have given it to you. But if you, own, if you own the state, you own the state. And when the state fails, you own the failure. Which is sort of what, what which is what's happening exactly. now, and there's a and there's another element of where the corruption comes in, right, Henri? Which is that Turks have been paying a tax since 1999 uh, that was instituted to make the country earthquake proof, if you will, after the 1999 terrible earthquakes in Istanbul, and people have been saying, "Where's that money? And where has it gone? What's happened with that money?" And Erdogan has been extremely cagey in answering the question of what's happened to that money he won't he won't answer the question doesn't that tend to even uh, make him more suspect in people's eyes yes and the other thing that happened is that there is a government uh those 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 turkish leaders that were collected were supposed to go to this organization called afad afad which is a relief organization it turns out in the 2023 budget um, I have none somewhere, but they significantly cut the budget of this organization. By contrast, they increased the budget of the religious um, authority in Turkey by the, almost an equivalent. I mean, people are saying the money that was supposed to go to relief, the relief organization has been transferred to uh, one of Erdogan's pet institutions, the Diyanet, which is the religious um, governing board in Turkey. So that is uh, one thing that people are, people are going to ask. The other big issue is that in Turkey, because of the corruption, all over Turkey, not just in, in, that, in the areas that, was, that were hit by the earthquake, you have shoddy construction, illegal construction. So you'll get a permit to build, let's say, an apartment building that has five floors, but then build three more floors illegally on top. Right, and you don't. The local authorities cannot give you a permit for those three, so you live kind of in limbo in those apartments, because those apartments are, you know, designed. For, you know, people buy those apartments, so um, 
there was pressure from all all those people all around Turkey who wanted to legalize their illegal apartments. And in 2019, Erdogan did that all over the country. And he, in Kahramanmaraş, which is one of the four provinces of um, hit by the earthquake, he came in 2019, I think, uh, or maybe I have the dates, uh, I just got something on that, and told the, the people of Kahramanmaraş, he said, 144,000 of you now are much better off because I've legalized basically this shoddy construction. And of course, the state, when it legalizes, you have to pay a fine, not a very significant fine that goes into state coffers, right? But effectively, what he, what he did was to, to legalize constructions that were illegal or who were done not to specifications, especially in an earthquake, an earthquake zone. Right, this is going to come. This is going to haunt him. There's no question about it because a great deal of, I mean, those those apartment buildings you saw from the pictures collapsed like pancakes. Right, and um, and it's not one, it's not two, it's it's thousands of them, and many of them, by the way, have not been excavated yet. We don't know how many bodies there are there. So um, this is going to haunt him because essentially he said what is more important is that you you quote unquote live uh, with a permit in a place that is uh, structurally unsafe right and now people are in, in Istanbul are, because this he also legalized them in Istanbul are now going and trying to find um, um, experts who will say if the, the building they live in is safe or not Ulrich, can I pull uh, a thread on something you said about the increase in budget to the religious authority? And in a way, this, this is to you, it's, but it's also, uh, you know, Eric, I think our listeners know you are our uh, ambassador to Turkey, so you know that country firsthand. You know, on the one hand, uh, you've been portraying Erdogan as a strong man, somebody uh, who will do just about anything to stay in power personally corrupt, or at least family, very corrupt. And, and yet there's also a side which from the outside looks ideological. That is to say, you know, an Islamist in some sense, however one chooses to interpret that word, uh, who is in some ways revising the, the basic uh, structure of a, a state that was created by Kemal Ataturk to be uh, secular. Another word that gets thrown around is neo-Ottomanist, that he has a, a foreign policy vision, which is of recreating Turkey, not, not of course, as the Ottoman Empire, to be sure, uh, but as a state with much greater reach than one might think and with important influence in areas that were part of the Ottoman Empire. So I'm wondering if you could explore, and Eric, also, if you would comment as well, uh, to what extent are we dealing with a leader who is informed by ideology uh, as well as avarice or simply the desire for power to stay in power? And I don't think, by the way, he's alone in this. If you think about Viktor Orban, who strikes me as also rather corrupt, uh, also preoccupied with retaining power, also somebody who's weakened institutions. But there's still, there's also a bit of an ideological dimension and there's a something of a foreign policy 
uh, vision as well. So if you could take those thoughts and uh, expand on them, I'd be grateful. First of all, we should we should put Erdogan in a category. I mean, he is one of these populist authoritarian leaders like Orban, like uh, um, Putin, uh, Bolsonaro, I mean, who essentially have uh, a vision for themselves, a desire to rule, then to rule almost absolutely. And uh, that vision of them that they have for themselves is also a vision for for their own country, right? So for Erdogan, almost from the beginning, he you could see that he had uh, in his mind that Turkey should is given its ge- geopolitical location, uh, given its powers. I mean, after all, this is the second largest uh, army in NATO. It is a dynamic economy. Uh, it is among the uh, 20 largest economies in the world. And he essentially saw that um, that Turkey had a much greater future, that Turkey could be a really influential country in, in world politics. And at the same time, of course, he as a leader of that country would also uh, become one of the great leaders of the, of, of, of our current international politics. And almost from the beginning, he kept saying that he would do this sign saying the the, the United Nations is larger than five, meaning the five uh, permanent members of the Security Council. He almost almost said it, uh, that he kind of saw himself and Turkey uh, deserving of a seat, in a permanent seat on the UN, UN Security Council as a representative, not just of Turkey, but also of the Muslim world, because he saw himself as um, a leader of of his Muslim world. And in some ways, of course, Turkey, yes, he has competition from Indonesia and Malaysia maybe, uh, but Turkey is again, member of the Western Alliance uh, and therefore, and also economically very powerful and therefore he, you know, you can say maybe Turkey deserves a, a greater say in, in world politics. But this ambition that he has is both personal and also ideological, right? But it is actually, into, I mean, I'll put this question out there since both of you guys do serious IR. I mean, when you look at the, at the foreign policy of Turkey or, Putin, or Russia or, or even Hungary, are we looking at national interests or are we looking at the interests of the individual leader who dominates and who shapes national interest? Right? Um, I'm not going to start a conversation on this, but, but with Erdogan, you clearly see that his own interest trumped the interests of the country. Right? Um, and, and he's, by the way, he's also quite. Uh, flexible, so to say. I mean, he can go after Saudi Arabia and and uh, Egypt and, and Israel and lambast them and, and call them names, etc. And then a few years later, as he's doing now, make peace with them. And suddenly, because he need, he figures out he needs them. I mean, so he will switch policies very, very easily. So ideology matters, but he is uh, quite adaptable Again, to, to still um, 
progress his his, his own his own ambition. Uh, Eric, you, you, I mean, yeah. you've dealt with him, and you, you yeah, should... I agree. I think uh, everything you said is is right, Henri. I think he is very ideological. I think a lot of his ideological. I mean, I would describe him uh, only slightly differently than you did. I mean, I think he is uh, an Islamo nationalist populist. There's definitely an inflection of Islam there in his thinking. Not, you know, kind of the ISIS Al-Qaeda brand, but the Mohammed Mahathir brand in, in, you know, Malaysia, I would say, is pretty close to how he, you know, sees it. Definitely sees himself as playing a huge role on the world stage. A lot of amour propre there that's grown over the years. I think those ideological pretensions were fed by his one-time uh, assistant and then later foreign minister and prime minister, who's now broken with him, Ahmet Davutolu who filled his head with ideas of Turkey being a, a, a Muslim superpower or a Middle Eastern superpower, uh, which is hence where you get a lot of this discussion, I think, of, of uh, neo-Ottomanism from his book, Strategic Depth, which talks about you know, these ideas. I think those, frankly, you know, those pretensions were all, always beyond Turkey's grasp in, in the sense that, for instance, the Arab states remember the Ottoman period very differently from the way Turks do. And I think Turks have seriously underestimated the ongoing lingering resentment uh, that Arabs feel when Turks uh, try and speak for the region or speak for, for them. And you've seen that come out in, in various ways over uh, the last 20 years of Erdogan's rule. The other thing I would say in response to Elliot's question and Henri, I'd be interested in your view of this. So we tend to, in terms of Ataturk, Erdogan clearly sees him as creating, you know, a a new dispensation in Turkey, uh, and that he is a founder of a new Turkey in the sense that Ottoman or that uh, uh, Ataturk was the founder of modern Turkey on the ashes of the Ottoman Empire, and. You know, this is where I think Americans have a little bit of problem understanding because we talk about secularism and we talk about tech, Turkey as a secular republic. And the problem is uh, for Americans, you know, our country was founded by dissenting Protestants who fled essentially England and, you know, the Netherlands and other parts of Europe uh, because they wanted to be able to practice their religion. And they were afraid that the state was corrupting religion, and they wanted religion to be independent of the state. When Ataturk disestablished the, the Sultanate and the Caliphate, he was concerned about the opposite, <laughs> that, that it was religion that was corrupting the state, and it was the state that had to be made pure from the influence of religion. And so when we talk about secularism, I think we Americans and Turks uh, who talk about it talk past each other on this subject. Uh, but Erdogan clearly, I think, hopes to change the dispensation, but more by evolution than revolution. He knows that Turks, if you look at them in polling, are are still pretty, by you know, large majority, still very secular in outlook, even if they vote for the Islamist party. And so you see a pattern of slow change in municipalities where the AKP has taken over and suddenly every public figure's wife is wearing a headscarf and the municipality has banned the, um, you know, the sale of alcohol. So it's more of an effort to move the country gradually in the direction 
of something that looks like Pakistan or or Malaysia rather than you know imposition of Sharia law. Would you would you agree with with, with that, Henri? Yes, I, w- I would agree with that. But I would add one little uh, thing to it, and that is that part of the reason why Turkey uh, and Erdogan thinks he can get away with, with a, a lot of things is because we have also indulged him, and we have indulged Turkey over the years, right? Because um, uh, there has always been a tilt towards Turkey in your old institution, uh, Eric, the, the State Department, uh, that Turkey is so important to us. So they, we always allow them to get away with things that we would not allow other countries to, to uh, other countries. So um, so they've gotten used to, to this notion of importance, right? And that has also um, propelled Erdogan to become much more demanding, if you want, and much more of a, shall we say, misusing the word here, but visionary in terms of uh, Turkey, Turkey's role in the world, because Turkey is so important, right? And the United States especially kind of agrees with that. And therefore, he, he pushes that envelope as much as, as possible. So there is a little bit of American um, complicit. involvement yeah. in, in we're, this We're as complicit well, which, because we... we... Because we, we've, yeah. we've regarded as Turkey as too big to fail, too important to fail. Exactly. Yeah, I, if, you know, I, I'm an outsider in all this, uh, of course, but I, I mean, I undoubtedly wouldn't can uh, interpret most things that go on in, uh, in the world as representing a failure of American foreign policy. But, but it does seem to me he's been rather clever in how he has uh, played us. And not just us. I think he's been clever in the way he played Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, if you look at the way they've positioned themselves on the Russia-Ukraine war, he's actually, on the one hand, supplied lots of hardware to the Ukrainians. I think uh, he has been quite careful not to say that to say that Crimea is not Russian. It's obviously in Turkish interest to get the Black Sea fleet out of uh, Sevastopol. On the uh, and, and he's welcoming lots of Russian refugees, but he's also getting there's lots of Russian money flowing in, and he's sort of positioned himself uh, in the middle in some ways, and you know in various places in the world. You know, think of Libya, for example. They've been fairly adroit, uh, I think, about uh, inserting themselves. You know, I wh- one question that I have. Uh, as I look at Turkey, you know, I think about other great empires that have coped with the end of empire. And it strikes me, Turkey is somewhat unusual in having gone really from being an imperial state, which it's not just that you had a kind of a metropole that was one nationality and lots of colonies and so on at the outside, but there was really a multi-ethnic state. I believe the majority of Istanbul was not... Turkish, actually, for uh, or not Muslim, I should say, uh, for a long time, and then it's become pretty much a single, uh, certainly a single religion uh, state. And and I'm curious to know how the reaction to the end of empire continues to reverberate. I mean, clearly, Ataturk was a huge part of that, rejecting openly things that were associated with the empire, you know, including headgear. Has 
Turkey really kind of turned its turned the page on its imperial past, or does it haunt it in some of the ways that the imperial past arguably haunts Britain and France down to the present day? No, look, this is a very interesting question. I mean, um, I, w- I would say that uh, the, em- the end of the empire uh, still haunts Turks. That is to say, there is something called the Sev syndrome in Turkey. Today, when you look at um, uh, Turkey's relationship with the most important global power, the United States, it's very, uh, shall we say, tenuous in the sense that, yes, we are formally allies, but when you do, you poll people in Turkey, and there was one not uh, recently, and when you ask Turks, which country presents the greatest threat to Turkey. 70% of the population said the United States. 70% of Turks think that the United States is um, a a threat to to Turkey. Um, So I I just did a chapter for a book that's, I don't know if it's going to be published, but um, where I try to look at that uh, phenomenon. And in fact, it is partially because the United States and Turkey have been allies and we have been very involved in the region, etc. But starting with the Cyprus crisis in 64, um, then the Kurdish issue starting with Operation Provide Comfort um, in, um, in 1987, right? And then ongoing to this day, we have a Turkey and America Kurdish problem. And then you have a revisionist leader in Erdogan who wants to change. These three strands have come together. There's always been anti-Americanism in Turkey, I mean, historically, but not to, to this to this extent, right? Where people think that uh, we, we create, we try to undermine uh, the government, we organize coups, that we um, even, some people now say the earthquake was caused by uh, the the aircraft carrier, the, the uh, George Bush aircraft carrier. I mean, there is enormous amount of uh, fear of the United States, even though this, and it goes back to the safe treaty because people think that the West in general wants to dismember Turkey. For our listeners, Henri, I think it's important to explain that the Treaty of Sevres was part of the Versailles uh, post-World War One settlement that was given over to dividing the former lands of the Ottoman Empire. And as, as Henri says, it's led to this notion of the Sevres plot that the Western allies wanted to dismember uh, Turkey by creating a Kurdish state and uh, a, a, uh, it intersected with uh, Greek aspirations uh, after World War uh, for a greater Greece as well. And that's not entirely unreasonable. I mean, the, the European powers were supporting the Greece. I, I just finished reading uh, Orhan Pamuk's uh, Knights of Plague. So this is his latest novel. And, uh, and of course, Orhan Pamuk himself is, as I understand, uh, fairly liberal. But, but it, is, it's, it was striking to me that this novel is indeed all about you know, the fall of the, the Ottoman Empire, its disintegration, but also this fear of the external powers that are going to rip the empire apart. And, you know, that that has made me think more about, you know, to what extent you're dealing with the aftermath of empire even here. 
I can attest to what Henri was saying about uh, the continuing power of anti-Americanism and the concern that, you know, the United States is Turkey's number one enemy, even though we're tied by an, a treaty alliance. So in 2004, when I was ambassador, I went and uh, it was during the U.S. election year and therefore was not a lot for me to do in that period of time. So I went and decided I would go to lecture at universities, which I thought were the, you know, that where anti-Americanism was sort of endemic and where famously at, at Metu at Middle East Technical University, my predecessor as ambassador, Bob Comer's uh, armored Cadillac limousine was overturned and burned. So I would typically go out and give speeches. And when I came back, you know, my my uh, staff at the embassy would say, how, how did it go, Mr. Ambassador? And I would invariably say, well, I exceeded the Comer standard. They didn't burn my limo. But I did go to, to um, Seljuk University in Konya, which is deep in the heart of some of the, you know, really the kind of Islamist Anatolian heartland. And I gave a speech and the first Q&A I got in the Q&A session was, we know that the United States has bombed Afghanistan and overthrown the government there. We know that you bombed Iraq and overthrew the government there. We know you want to bomb Iran and overthrow the government. When are you going to bomb Turkey and, and overthrow the government of Turkey? And I said, look, you know, the last thing that the president of the United States or the American people want is to bomb Turkey and overthrow its government. It's been a NATO ally since 1952. It fought together with us in Korea. I gave all the normal talking points. Next day, the local newspaper had a headline, U.S. ambassador confirms U.S. has list of countries to bomb Turkey, last country on the list. But look, there are also uh, some real events that have produced this. I mean, uh, most people won't know, but in 1964, there was a crisis on, in Cyprus and um, the Turks were about to invade Cyprus. And it turns out that then the Turkish prime minister, Ismet Inönü, who was the number two to Atatürk uh, at the beginning of the Republic, did not want to invade, but was feeling this pressure to invade. In fact, the Turkish military was not ready, did not have the wherewithal, didn't have even landing ships, didn't have maps of, of Cyprus. So he told the, um, the ambassador um, at the time, uh, that he was going to invade. The ambassador writes to, to Washington. Washington overnight produces a letter called the Johnson letter because it comes from President Johnson, which was very, very badly written. It was written by George Ball. By, by uh, yes, yes. And, and it was a terrible letter. But that 1964 letter, the Johnson letter, is still part of the discourse today, even though it was a letter, I mean, it could have written, been diff, written differently and given Inunu the cover he needed not to invade. But it, people now think that Inunu was going to invade and the United States stopped him with this horrible letter that said, you know, NATO Article Number 5 would not operate if the Russians attacked and the Soviets, or that the United States, Turkey could not use American weapons and so on and so forth. It was really very, very harsh. And it's a letter that Johnson realized afterwards, it was a mistake and he invited Inunu to, to Washington to to kind of make amends. But in terms of Turkish, shall we say, consciousness, the Johnson letter keeps being brought up over and over again in any conversation about Turkey and the United States, that we essentially backstabbed the Turks in 64, except that 
we were doing what the Turkish government wanted us to do, right? We did it poorly, but that, that's, and that eventually led to this 1974 invasion of Cyprus because uh, they, they would not listen to us in 74. You mentioned the Turkish military only. I mean, one of Erdogan's achievements, if that's what we want to call it, seems to have been really sort of breaking the military as an independent institutional force in Turkey, which it had been for decades. Um, and to, the, to, you know, to include, unfortunately, things like executing political leaders. But I, I have to say, you know, I'm curious, how did he manage that? And is that, is the a Turkish military now simply neutered, which might not be such a bad thing? Or is it an instrument of this kind of populist nationalist uh, movement, which he's built around himself? The Turkish military committed suicide. Uh, the Turkish military, which was the power behind the throne from essentially Ataturk's time to essentially 2007, uh, Erdogan, at the very beginning of his rule, uh, was very worried about the Turkish military intervening and overthrowing him, and that's why he was so pro-Western. See, he, you know, he became the darling of the West because he introduced all these democratic institutions, ideas, etc. People could say and write anything they wanted, right? But in two thousand seven, um, the army or the military, I should say, made the kind of mistake that people who are too self-confident, like Putin in Ukraine or Erdogan today, made. So there was an election, for a presidential election. At the time, the president was not this all-powerful per person, but was mostly a symbolic um, uh, leader. And Erdogan, this is 2007, so he's been in power now for four years, proposed Abdullah Gül as the candidate, the AKP candidate for the presidency. The military stepped in and said, no way. You can't have Abdullah Gül. Why? Because Abdullah Gül's wife was a headscarf. And the idea that a woman with a headscarf would sleep in Atatürk's bed right, was too much for them to fathom. So they warned him in no uncertain terms. So what did he do? Very smartly, he called for an election. Whereas he had won only 32% when he came to power in, in 2002. In 2007, he won 46%. It was a repudiation of the military in no answer. And the military from that point onwards lost power. After the 2016 coup, attempted coup d'etat, and it wasn't the whole military. We really, it's very uh, du dubious what happened that, uh, in 2016. But nonetheless, that also gave him an excuse to cleanse the army of something like 50% of the admirals and, and generals. And now it is not a military that has been neutered. It's a military that has become subservient to, to Erdogan. There was an incident the other day, which was very, a telltale sign he was uh, at a factory that was producing some new homemade, um, uh, not a bullet, but an artillery piece that the Turks had created. And he had, a, the, he had the brass, the top military brass in, in attendance there. He gave a speech 
And Erdogan, by the way, expects a little bit like Kim Jong-un to, for everybody to, to applaud him after every speech he gives. And the military, uh, the, all the officers are also applauded him. And that actually created a reaction because for the first time people saw the military uh, uh, officers when they should have, they're, they're supposed to be apolitical, should not have applauded the president. But it gives you a sense of how much power he now has over the military because all the officers who presumably were not sympathetic to him are now not there and he controls the promotion process obviously um so it is now one of the institutions he controls we're running out of time and before we we before we leave our our listeners we talked earlier about the institutions that uh, erdogan has come to dominate and you pointed out that he completely controls now the judiciary, and that the rule of law in Turkey has, to the extent that it ever really existed, I mean, I remember a senior government minister when I was ambassador telling me that uh, getting justice in Turkish courts was, uh, uh, I actually said it was equivalent to a coin flip. And he said, oh, no, Mr. Ambassador, that's, you know, a coin flip would be 50-50. And you you and I both know that uh, chances of getting justice in a Turkish court are far less than that. So you've had your own personal experience with this, and I, I wonder if you'd share it a little bit with our, our audience, because it's really quite extraordinary, in my view, what's happened to you. Uh, yes, I was, um, in 2016, I was in Turkey the night of the coup. I was uh, organized, I was at the Wilson Center, uh, I was running the Middle East program, and we had a grant to look at the impact of Obama's JCPOA and what did the Middle Eastern countries uh thought about it so instead of bringing everybody from the middle east to washington i decided i would do it in istanbul plus i liked uh and i found this hotel in an island uh near istanbul that i liked very much and so we the first night as people were coming in the coup happened when the coup failed and i had brought all these people to uh to to turkey saturday sunday we did our business we had our um our workshop and then the workshop ended. I went down to Istanbul, stayed a couple of days, and came home. Two days later, there was this amazing attack uh, that started where I was accused of being one of the organizers of that failed coup attempt in 2016 on July 15th. Um, and it was clearly a government-initiated uh, campaign because the, the first um articles on me had the exact time of my arrival and passport control coming in and coming and going out and those times were put, were correct so this is something only um a government has obviously in terms of information and turkish journalists never do any work so you know that they, they were fed that information and from then on this whole became uh, an enormous campaign they have now an arrest warrant on me but they they used that i mean they wanted to blame the united states and it just happened to be that it was i was a convenient target if you want um they wanted to blame the united states for the coup and since i had been in the state department i was a former official uh and since they always think that you know any, any american who writes on turkey must be a cia agent i'm also a cia agent um, so that is the, it was a way for them to be able to say that the United States was involved in the coup. Later on, 
they, that role was morphed into, I mean, I'm still, I still was the um, organizers, masterminds of, of the coup, um, but they issued an indictment because they needed to also blame somebody else that they wanted to keep in prison, a, a, a gentleman by the name of Osman Kavala, who's this philanthropist and civil society leader that Erdogan, for reasons that are still unclear to me and most people, Erdogan really dislikes and hates. So he's been in jail now for almost six years. And they issued an indictment to keep him in jail by saying that he had met, he had dinner with me, and therefore he was part of a coup attempt. And I have read this very thick indictment, and I actually wrote about it in the Atlantic uh, a year ago. Um, it, it, it is, it is really. That's why you see how the judicial system in Turkey has become uh, a joke. Um, so the former New York um, Supreme Court Judge Saul Wacker used to say, "You can indict." Uh, the, I forgot about who he said it about, but it was you can, uh, they can indict a, a ham sandwich if they want to, right? And this is exactly the case where you look, you read the indictment, and it is absurd. I mean, there's nothing that connects us, um, Osman, except that I bumped into him at the restaurant, my favorite restaurant in Istanbul, to, uh, a few days after the coup, uh, and I walked in. And uh, he was there sitting with other Europeans. We shook hands. That was it. They made that into a dinner and investigated. So, the, the, so they, they came up with this indictment of how he and I organized a coup. It's absurd. It's, I mean, to say Kafkaesque is, is, will be doing injustice to Kafka in some ways. I mean, it's worse than Kafkaesque. Um, and, uh, but, so there's an indictment on me that and a arrest warrant and every couple of weeks there's some new crisis that occurs that I'm I'm, I'm involved in. When I wrote that foreign uh, foreign affairs piece that you you mentioned, they decided that here I am. I've decided who the next Turkish prime minister should be, and that I, the CIA, have and the Turkish and American deep state has have now. Um, a, a candidate for for the, for the presidency. I mean, everything I do or I don't do becomes a story, unfortunately, and it has cost me a great deal in terms of my career, in terms of friends who won't talk to me because they're afraid. I just quick got, I mentioned to you uh, just to give you an idea of how it works. I was asked to write a chapter on Turkish-American relations for a book that deals with a hundred years of um, uh, Turkey uh, by. Uh, a French Turk uh, uh, editor, I mean, academic, and another one. So I wrote, took me seven months. I mean, it was really a, because I, I tried to take a different approach. I finished the article, sent it to them. They were very happy. Four days later, they said we won't be able to include it in the in the in the book because there were three authors from Turkey who apparently objected and said it was too dangerous for them to be in the same book with me. So I, I got kicked out. So if you want, if you want an article on the hundred years of Turkish American relations, I mean, I'm looking for a place to publish it. But um, so, but it, but it's crazy. I mean, it, the, you realize how people are are really afraid. I mean, I'm I've got uh, there was a 
not only that, I mean, it was once I was invited to a conference and they tried to disinvite me after inviting me because the church was objecting. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy, but, but it's all based on nothing. But that's but the last thing I want to say. After I read the indictment, you realize that the, the two people who signed off on that indictment are the chief prosecutor of Istanbul and his deputy. Now, these are very, very, very high officials in the Turkish system that they would put their names to garbage, right? to fiction, that they, they've invented things. Right, it tells you a little bit about the state of the of the Turkish legal system. If Erdogan wants somebody to go to jail, all he has to do is say, "Come up with a reason," and they will. Selatin Demirtas, the the uh, former leader of the People's Democracy Party, is in jail for six years. Why? Because Erdogan blames him for the election uh, defeat in Istanbul in the, during the mayoralty because Selatin Demirtas told. Kurds to vote for the opposition, and he, and Erdogan never forgave him for that. Yeah, I think Stalin, so jail. Stalin's prosecutor Vashinsky said, "Give me the man, I'll show you the crimes." So <laughs> exactly, I think that's where we are. Henri, you've been very gracious with your time. You've been a terrific guest, uh, Elliot. Thank you. Any last words? No, I just want to say this is, uh, I think, one of the most uh, instructive sessions we've ever had, and that. Uh, that kind of personal story at the end makes it even more poignant. I think I know, I don't, I'm not sure I know who I'm rooting for in the next Turkish election, but I think I know who I'm rooting against. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for inviting me. That'll be it for this episode of Shield of the Republic. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, please uh, leave us a review, like us on um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, and drop us a line at shieldoftherePublic at gmail.com. We um, may not be able to answer all letters uh, and emails we get, but we do read them. So thank you very much for your continued support. <laughs>